Hi guys, this is The Proven Podcast, and I'm your host, Kira Buxton. The Bible makes some pretty dramatic statements about what it means to follow Jesus Christ. Things that set his followers apart from their surrounding context in ways that are usually uncomfortable and odd to people who don't follow him, and even those of us who do. And it seems like more and more we're seeing Christians make excuses for the way the Bible's teaching differs with the culture around us, leading to a compromise of values and a dismantling of truth. The result is a skewed view of what it means to be a Christian, which not only misleads and confuses people, but also presents a false and powerless gospel to a world that desperately needs God's saving grace and truth. In Matthew 5:13 through 16, Jesus said, "'You are the salt of the earth, "'but if salt has lost its taste, "'how shall its saltiness be restored? "'It is no longer good for anything "'except to be thrown out and trampled under people's feet. "'You are the light of the world, a city set on a hill cannot be hidden, nor do people light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on a stand, and it gives light to all in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before others, so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. Everybody knows that salt brings out and enhances flavors, while also maintaining the capacity to preserve perishable goods. The point made here by Jesus highlights the absurdity of something so vital and so indispensable not fulfilling its purpose. And then he goes on to emphasize this idea by noting the similarly self-defeating and purposeless act of lighting a lamp, only to hide it. The point being, Christians are supposed to stand out. We are to be distinct because to follow Christ is to utterly forsake the values of oneself and of the world, to pledge complete allegiance to him in every area of our lives. In this way, the nature of a Christ follower will be distinct within its setting, And the result of that yielding to God will be to bring out the best in the world around us as we follow his purposes and direction. As Jesus noted in John 10.10, he came that we might have life and have it abundantly. So that sounds pretty good, right? I mean, abundant life. Who doesn't want that? Yet we find this inevitable conflict between our definition of what that looks like and what God deems abundant life. One doesn't even have to peek far into Eden where the Bible explains how at the beginning of time, humanity was planted in a teeming and fruitful garden made by God to realize that there are some differences between what we think is good and what he thinks is good. Right there in Genesis, we see Adam and Eve given full reign of the garden only to indulge the temptation to eat of the one tree that God told them was off limits, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And they do so after considering the words of a fallen angel known as Satan, whose own pride and defiance against God got him cast out of heaven. Satan, whose nickname in the Bible is the Deceiver, disguises himself as a serpent in the garden and approaches the woman to sow doubt towards God in her mind. In Genesis 3, we see his first recorded words to humanity set them up to question the authority of God's word with a simple statement, quote, Did God actually say you shall not eat of any tree in the garden? And the woman said to the serpent, We may eat of the fruit of the trees in the garden, but God said, You shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that is in the midst of the garden, neither shall you touch it, lest you die. End quote. However, the woman's statement wasn't even true. She added that part about not touching the fruit when God only prohibited eating it. We go back a chapter, and we see that God actually said in Genesis 2.16, You may surely eat of every tree in the garden, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat, for in the day you eat of it, you shall surely die, end quote. Jumping back into the dialogue with Satan at Genesis 3, 4, we see, quote, but the serpent said to the woman, 
you will not surely die. For God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food and that it was a delight to the eyes and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate. And she also gave some to her husband who was with her and he ate. Then the eyes of both were opened and they knew that they were naked and they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loincloths, end quote. The chapter continues with God approaching the humans, asking about whether they ate the fruit he commanded them not to eat. The humans play the blame game, and then God responds to their actions by making them clothes to hide their nakedness, initiating penalties for their disobedience, and casting Adam and Eve out of the garden so that they might not take hold of the tree of life, which would seal their broken state into eternity if eaten as sinners. All this to say, from the very start, we as people have tried to become like God without actually involving him. Instead of trusting him, we want to define good and evil ourselves. In Proverbs 9.10, it says, The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom, and the knowledge of the Holy One is insight. Proverbs 8 also talks about how this wisdom, founded on an awareness and a respect for God's perfect nature and authority, is worth more than anything you could ask for or desire. Verses 11 and 12 say, Take my instruction instead of silver, and knowledge rather than choice gold. For wisdom is better than jewels, and all that you may desire cannot compare with her. Verse 19 later says, My fruit is better than gold, even fine gold, and my yield than choice silver. So by now hearing this, you're probably thinking, all right, that's crazy. After all, how can you make that comparison? Throughout all time, humanity has used these items as markers of wealth and success. But bear with me for a second. The scarcity and rarity, as well as the purity of these items, drives their value. Because they are uncommon, and there's so much labor associated with sourcing and harvesting and revealing their beauty from out of the raw, rough resources of the earth. Importantly, purity speaks to the integrity of a substance, meaning it has no alloys or imperfections, but it's rather a whole and consistent substance with no contamination. It's just one thing through and through. When it comes to gems, this means performing various cuts to slice away imperfections, and when it comes to precious metals like gold, this involves using extreme heat to melt the metal, causing the solid to change form and separating the actual gold from the dross, or the impurities. These impurities then rise to the surface and are able to be skimmed off and removed entirely before the metal cools and re-solidifies into a new and pure state. As Christians, we are called to be consistent in applying God's truth to all areas of our lives, submitting to his authority in everything, which leads to integrity and a pure faith, not a wayward, half-hearted choosing of God's way in addition to mine or someone else's, which really isn't following God at all. The willingness to do this, to submit entirely to God's precepts, comes down to a trust that he really is who he says he is. That if he is truly good, truly just, truly righteous, and truly loving like the Bible says, then there can be none of these wonderful, desirable things, not even a shred, apart from him who is their very source. And so we ought to rely fully on his guidance rather than on our own understanding. This concept is radical because it means that we don't get to define what's good and bad. Instead, we have to look to him as the definer of all things, accept his counsel, and let him point out and correct the bad parts that corrupt us and others. Adding in our own values or deviating from his is akin to adding alloys to a precious metal. It diminishes the integrity of something pure and good and valuable by mixing it with something of zero worth. 
meaning that love, that goodness, that justice that we long for, it's no longer in its true form. It's been adulterated. It's something else entirely now. And it's lost its worth because it's no longer perfect and unblemished. This reality when examined is troubling to us because it forces us to realize that something of truly great worth only comes at great cost. After all, I mean, who isn't a skeptic of a cheap diamond ring? And when do you ever find gold for the price of costume jewelry? If we do stumble across this type of offer, we wonder, okay, what's the catch? Because we don't just give a stranger a great deal on something of extreme value unless we're being extremely generous. Or unless we're God, who is the only one able to foot the most costly bill of time, the payment for sin. We saw in the garden account that our sin, our rebellion from God's perfection, separated us from him. After all, he is the very source of all goodness, and to depart from following his nature is to depart from that goodness, removing oneself from the presence and manner and nature of what is good, thereby establishing the absence of good, which is what the Bible calls sin or evil. God can't deny the truth about himself and tarnish goodness by sweeping a violation of his character under the rug as if it doesn't matter, or as if good and evil are one thing and there's no distinction between the two. James 1, 13 through 17 says, Let no one say when he is tempted, I am being tempted by God. For God cannot be tempted with evil, and he himself tempts no one. But each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own desire. Then desire, when it has conceived, gives birth to sin, and sin, when it is fully grown, brings forth death. Do not be deceived, my beloved brothers. Every good gift and every perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of lights, with whom there is no variation or shadow due to change. Of his own will, he brought us forth by the word of truth, that we should be a kind of first fruits of his creatures. We see here that God's integrity is really good news for those of us who care about things like justice and love, because God's nature is perfectly, purely good, and he's unwilling to join with anything flawed or opposed to that goodness. And when we see humanity cry out for retribution against things like crime, we see an echo of this call for correction against a wrong, passed down to us from our creator. But this is also very bad news for us because our lives are characterized by sin, those departures from good that he cannot ignore or take part in. Colossians 1.21 defines those who do not trust Christ as, quote, alienated and hostile in mind, doing evil deeds, end quote. And in Romans 1.21, we see that, quote, although they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him, but they became futile in their thinking and their foolish hearts were darkened, end quote. In other words, our own pursuits have led us astray, and now we can't even see where we're going. We lack the sermon about right and wrong because we're cut off from the very source of what's right, and yet have been deceived by sin into thinking that isn't the case. So in order for God to eliminate sin, which is any deviation from his character and will, any departure from goodness at all, he would have to eliminate not just the heinous acts we see in the news headlines we hate, but also every single one of us, because sin has emerged from our very hearts. Now, we're unable to take that punishment from sin upon ourselves without dying because in God's courtroom, we're guilty. We deserve that punishment of being severed from the source of life since sin permeates everything we do. In order to escape that penalty, something pure and innocent must die in our place so that we can live. So God, in his mercy and in his love, sent his own son, made fully God and fully man, to do what we could never do, 
He was born into human flesh, lived a perfect, sinless life, and died in our place on a cross as a once and for all substitutionary offering for all sins, fulfilling the penalty owed to us for our rebellion against him and preserving his justice against anything that sets itself up against what is good. Romans 5, 6 through 11 delivers to us the good news of the gospel of Jesus Christ. It says, For while we were still weak, at the right time Christ died for the ungodly. For one will scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person one would dare even to die. But God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Since therefore we have now been justified by his blood, much more shall we be saved by him from the wrath of God. For if while we were enemies we were reconciled to God by the death of his Son, much more, now that we are reconciled, shall we be saved by his life. More than that, we also rejoice in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have now received reconciliation. End quote. So, now that Christ has paid the high price for our sin with his life, we're offered a new eternal life born of God's Spirit if we trust in his atoning work. The Holy Spirit of God can come and dwell within us, making us right in the eyes of God who now sees our debts canceled to him through faith in Jesus as the only way to a right relationship with him. The presence of God's spirit in our lives then regenerates us by changing our desires and therefore our conduct to match God's own character. But practically speaking, partaking in this life comes at the cost of pursuing any preference or any ideology that leads us away from true goodness, which can only be found in him. In fact, Jesus literally calls us to take up our crosses daily and die to ourselves, like he did for us, because our sin so deeply corrupts our ability to determine what is truly good that, left to our own devices, we're doomed to head right back down the same destructive paths again. In Matthew 10, 38 through 39, Jesus says, And whoever does not take his cross and follow me is not worthy of me. Whoever finds his life will lose it, and whoever loses his life for my sake will find it, end quote. Because he himself paid the price for our waywardness and our lack of wisdom, he promises that as we yield our lives to him and die this death to following our own counsel, we'll actually live. And that truly abundant life then spans into eternity, where in heaven we'll meet with him completely unseparated by the impurities brought to us through sin. It's a call that commands consistency, integrity, and purity of pursuit, not compromise. If we believe he is God, then he must truly be Lord over all, and we must be entirely subject to him, refusing to add or detract from his words. We see in Proverbs 35 through 6, it says, Every word of God proves true. He is a shield to those who take refuge in him. Do not add to his words, lest he rebuke you and you be found a liar. In 1 John 1, 5 through 2, 6, it says, This is the message we have heard from him and proclaim to you, that God is light and in him is no darkness at all. If we say we have fellowship with him while we walk in darkness, we lie and do not practice the truth. But if we walk in the light, as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another and the blood of Jesus, his son, cleanses us from all sin. If we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. If we say we have not sinned, we make him a liar, and his word is not in us. My little children, I am writing these things to you so that you may not sin. But if anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. He is the propitiation for our sins, and not for ours only, but also for the sins of the whole world. 
And by this we know that we have come to know him, if we keep his commandments. Whoever says, I know him, but does not keep his commandments is a liar. And the truth is not in him, but whoever keeps his word, in him truly the love of God is perfected. By this we may know that we are in him. Whoever says he abides in him ought to walk in the same way in which he walked. End quote. In 1 John 3, 9, it later says, No one born of God makes a practice of sinning, for God's seed abides in him, and he cannot keep on sinning, because he has been born of God. This all amounts to something that looks pretty extreme if taken seriously. Philippians 3 emphasizes how abiding in Christ sets us apart to cherish serving Jesus above all other goals, privileges, and priorities. Starting in verse 8, the Apostle Paul says, Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. For his sake I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish, in order that I may gain Christ and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith, that I may know him and the power of his resurrection and may share his sufferings, becoming like him in his death, that by any means possible I may attain the resurrection from the dead. So here we are again at a crossroads, confronted with the fact that we're going to look a lot different from the world and its value systems if we want to follow Jesus. We're not going to be able to make excuses for what God says, but we're going to have to acknowledge our own sinfulness and then humbly submit to God, the only perfect authority. The Bible isn't shy about noting that what God calls wisdom is considered utter foolishness to those who don't know him. In fact, it continually acknowledges that his ways will always seem backwards to those who haven't encountered the love of Christ, because sin hardens and deceives the heart so that we continue to doubt his good and trustworthy nature and choose it over him. After all, as Jesus said in Matthew 6:21, for where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. In other words, we're gonna seek after and hold dear to what we see as most valuable, whether that be the one true God or a God of our own design. So it's in this space where following Jesus causes conflict with corrupt human culture that we're going to wade deep into what the word of God says about controversial issues with the hope that you'll come to know and believe the proven worth of following Jesus Christ, no matter what the cost. We'll close today with 1 Peter 1, 3-9. It says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, According to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for you, who by God's power are being guarded through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. In this you rejoice, though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials, so that the tested genuineness of your faith more precious than gold that perishes though it is tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Though you have not seen him, you love him. Though you do not now see him, you believe in him and rejoice with joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory, obtaining the outcome of your faith, the salvation of your souls. This is The Proven Podcast. We'll see you on the next episode. Thank you.